The following audio is from The Village Church. More information about The Village Church is available at www.thevillagechurch.net. Hey, how are we? We good? Okay, let's do this. Let's go 2 Corinthians chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a little black hardback one somewhere around you. If you don't own a Bible, please take that one with you. Uh, it'll be our gift to you. All right, let me start this way. I, I don't ever want to pander to you. Are you you tracking with that? Um, I think if I'm willing to pander to you, and what I mean by that is just say to you things that I think you want to hear, then in the end, I have been very unloving to you. And then in the end, the village church is about me, not about you, not about God, not about the gospel, um, and, and not about, in the end, lining ourselves up with how God created the universe to be. So I don't ever want to pander to you. And, and I want to shoot straight with you, even when we get into very difficult topics. And today is a very difficult topic. And, and so I, I want to just show you what it says. And, and then I want us to see what the Holy Spirit wants to do here. Um, but I just want to I, I throw it out very early that a bulk of us will not like this. Um, we much prefer the Tinkerbell God who flutters around in a green dress helping everyone to fly. The God of the Bible is wildly unpopular because he tends to stamp his enemies until his feet are covered with blood. And no one talks about that one. Um, And so some of this today will be thick, um, but I don't know what to do but to tell you what it says. And so um, we'll start from there. Okay, a horrible memory of mine. When I was five years old, uh, we were living in San Francisco, California, uh, I always think every time I say that, some of you are going, okay, all right. It's all coming together for me now. I get it. Uh, that's what's wrong with you. But anyway, like the bumper sticker said, we got here as fast as we could, but I started out in San Francisco. When I was five years old, I had a sister who was two years older than me and a sister that was two years younger than me. Um, my parents, um, for whatever reason, uh, probably because we pestered them to death. I know that now that I have kids decided to get us a pet. And so they got us a gray kitten. Um, We named him Smokey. Huh? Very creative. I had that in me very early. Smokey. And um, I came out of, this is etched to me. You're about to see why it's etched to me. Um, I came out of my room and it was a two-story house. If you've ever seen any shows or movies in San Francisco, they build the houses on the hills. We lived on a hill, 305 Bowling Drive. We were the top house. It's a two-story house. Um, and so came out second floor, my room, and then the staircase worked like this. It went down to a wall and then you turned and it went down to the first floor. You tracking with all of that? All of this is important information. doesn't feel like it, but it is. I get to the top of the stairs and at the top of the stairs, Smokey is giving himself a bath. All right. So he's licking his paw. He's doing that thing. Okay. And for whatever reason, I picked up Smokey. And as hard as I could, threw him down the stairs. Boy, I'm not trying to make a joke or even make anybody gasp or anything. I'm just telling you what I did. And I threw Smokey so hard that he hit that wall and made it down those stairs. And so then I just ran down the stairs. Okay? When I got to the bottom of the stairs, um, I had hurt him bad. He He was just laying there and wasn't moving. And at the age of five, for the first time in my life, I felt, oh my God, what did I just do? It's the first time I ever felt that. 
It's my first recollection of, I can't believe I just did that. And, and so I tried to see if the cat was okay. Smokey wasn't moving. Smokey recovered fine. He always hated me, but he was fine. Uh, literally attacked me several times over the next seven years. But uh, I was just guilt-ridden. I just took it. I deserve that, all right? But um, I, I went upstairs, shut my door, and cried, which made it very difficult to lie 10 minutes later when my mom came in and said, did you do something to Smokey? <laughs> no, why? All right. Um, this is the first time I ever felt it. I'd never felt it before. Like, um, I, I, the word we use is shame. But the feeling is one of just weight that we don't, A, we're not really sure where it came from, and then B, we don't know how to get it off of us. Things like that is what made me an agnostic, not an atheist. See, atheists just confuse. I just think it's silly. Like that belief, it's silly. You, you have to. You, you have no explanation for almost everything. Like I, I have the Discovery Channel, National Geographic Channel. I enjoy that. Um, like nature is cruel. It is cruel at the highest order of things. It, it is murderous, violent, and without remorse. Huh? I mean, have you ever seen the lions stalk the antelope until they find the sick one, the old one, the weak one, the baby one, pounce on that thing and chew it, obliterate it, and then kill one of their own who gets in the way? And he's not laying there going, oh, I shouldn't have. It was just a baby. How dare I slaughter the baby antelope? No, man, he's chewing on its liver. He doesn't care. So why is it, now follow me here, why is it that humankind alone feels this weight? Why is it that nothing else in the creative order feels this? And, and don't give me, well, that's socially put on you. It's uh, socially put on me when I have five. My mom didn't have a conversation with me that went like this. Hey, let's try not to kill a cat. <laughs> you will enjoy this cat at a higher level if you don't murder it. Because once you kill it, it's going to get stiff and gross, and you don't want to do that. You don't want to kill it. Nobody told me that. I, there was something intrinsic firing off of me. Something is. And then here's the thing. I, there's no way I could have known this at five. No way I could have known it at five. But that that feeling, whatever that is, conscience, Jiminy Cricket, the Imago Dei, the image of God in us, whatever it is would be a constant companion showing up time and time and time again and that thought oh my god what i just do would be with me over and over and over and over again okay so here's what we've got to figure out what do we do with it because it's there all right so even, even if you are an atheist and, and you would say, well, that's just hormones or electrons firing off in your head that make you, even if you want to pretend that there's nothing divine, nothing spiritual, nothing deeper than just cognitive action occurring here, you still have to do something with it. It still it doesn't mean it's not there, all right? Unless you want to get into a crazy level of unbelief that would just go, it's not there. Uh, you know, I'm not wearing a jacket. No, you're wearing a jacket. I see it. No, no, that's not a jacket. No, I'm telling you, bro, you're wearing a jacket. It isn't a jacket. Someone have a mirror, please. The dude, you're wearing a jacket. Okay, so you've got to do something with guilt because no one escapes it. Not in any culture, not in any place. 
if you are human, regret and guilt were there, look at me, whether you grew up in church or not. Now, churchmen historically have been excellent at using guilt to make themselves wealthy and, and grow their churches, have they not? Was that too honest? Do I need to pull back on that a little bit? Okay. No, man, guilt's a very powerful tool. All right? Guilt's a very powerful tool. Here's what I would tell you. The Bible's going to say there are two types of guilt. There's a good kind of guilt and then a bad kind of guilt. And the good kind of guilt is good because of what it brings about. And the bad kind of guilt is bad because of what it brings about. And so all I want to do in our time together is I want to show you what, as Christians, we believe concerning guilt and, and then what world-wise the secular believes about guilt and how they handle it. And, and then we'll just let it roll down and see what the Holy Spirit wants to do, okay? All right, so let's look at this. Second Corinthians chapter seven. We're just gonna read one verse very quickly. It's gonna give two definitions. In fact, it's not even gonna give definitions. It's just gonna make two statements and then we'll have to dig into define. 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So we've got two different kinds of grief, two different kinds of guilt, two different kinds of shame. One is a godly grief. The other is a worldly grief. So let's start to unpack them. We'll start with godly grief. In 2 Samuel 11, the Bible tells us that King David, when he should have been out at war, was not at war. He was on his roof. He's looking around on his roof and he sees a woman bathing on her roof. Just a note, move that inside. Okay? <laughs> David sees her. Help us. Help us. Bathe inside. Now, asks a servant, who is that? All right? The answer. That's Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. Do you know Uriah? Uriah, one of your soldiers. Uriah, a man fighting a battle that you should be in right now. A man who's not at home with his naked wife, which is where all men want to be, because... He's fighting your battle. The sarcasm is lost on David. And David says, bring her to me. He sleeps with her and she gets pregnant. So David, in a quandary now, launches plan A. He writes a dispatch to the front and asks that Uriah be sent home. It, I don't think that this is a stretch of your imagination. If a man's been off to war for six months, nine months, 12 months, and hasn't seen his wife six months, nine months, 12 months, the reunion is sweet. Amen? Amen. Now, <laughs> Uriah comes home. This is plan A. David goes, Uriah, who has not seen his wife for six months, nine months, a year, will sleep with his wife. Aha, pregnant. Yes, and I'm out. I'm clean. Nobody ever knows. Problem is, Uriah comes in and tells the king that he made a vow to the king that he would not touch his wife until he won the battle for the king. <laughs> Plan B. David pulls out the good wine. If you don't know what that means, if you have to screw the top off of it, that's not what we're talking about here, all right? <laughs> Just to further it, if it's in a box. <laughs> I'm not, if you like it, I'm not, I'm not telling you not to like it. I'm just saying on a whole, the globe would agree that if it screws off or it's in a box, it's malt liquor. It's not wine. All right. So not that I have anything wrong with malt liquor. Now, David gives him good drink, gives him good drink, gives him good drink, 
until his legs are wobbly and he's happy. And he sends him home. Bathsheba's gets her nice dress on, all right? Leaves the, these two unbuttoned. <laughs> Perfume. Uriah, not trusting himself because of his drunkenness, refused to even, refuses to even go inside and lays down on the front porch just so he wouldn't break his vow to the king. Plan C. <laughs> David pulls out a piece of paper and writes on a dispatch to move Uriah from the rear to the front. Seals it, gives it to Uriah. Uriah climbs on his horse, rides back to the front with a letter pretty much condemning him to die, gives it to the general. The general moves Uriah from the rear to the front, and in the next battle, Uriah is killed. News comes back to David. David, oh, Uriah's dead. What could I do that would honor him? What could I do that in the end would show him my appreciation for his sacrifice? I know. I'll take his wife as my own. I will care for her and provide for her. And wow, within minutes of our marriage, she's pregnant. (laughs) And so David wipes his brow and goes, hit it. Yes. Just a couple of chapters later, in fact, a chapter later, Nathan the prophet comes in and he goes, David, I need some help. King, I, I need some help. I need you to rule on this. So David said, what's the situation? He said, there was a man that had 100 sheep, um, a very wealthy man on a lot of acreage. And the man who lived next to him, he had one lamb and he loved that lamb. He cared for that lamb. He laid that lamb on his chest, petted it, loved that lamb with his whole heart. The man with a hundred sheep stole the man's lamb and killed the man. What should we do? And true to form, in just humanity, David stands up and says, bring the man here. We will kill this man. And Nathan goes, you're the man. Bam, bam, bam. <laughs> I mean, just straight up got suckered in, didn't he? There's a little story for you. I mean, at some point you think David would like, wait a minute. <laughs> Sounds familiar, but he doesn't. We'll kill the man. Nathan goes, you are the man. And immediately David tears his clothes and weeps. Now here's, here's where we need to start unpacking this story. David goes into the temple face down, says these words. Listen to him. Against you and you alone have I sinned. Backtrack. Lust, adultery, deceit, murder, more deceit. All of it, David says, is a sin not against Uriah, not against Bathsheba, not against the nation, not against, is a sin against God. Godly grief occurs in the understanding that the offense that has occurred is an offense against God. It's not, and we'll unpack this greatly here in about 15 minutes, it's not, oh, I feel bad that I've been outed and that people know what a dog I am. Okay, that's not godly grief. Godly grief is I have sinned against, I have wronged. See, what David did is David looked down at Bathsheba and had contempt in his heart for God. How? Because he's going, all that you've given me, all that you've provided for me in every way that you've cared for me and what you've given me as a gift isn't adequate. That's what I want. That's contempt. 
for God. He used Bathsheba as someone without a soul. That's contempt against the Imago Dei. He lies, he murders, he cannot. All of it is an offense against a holy, righteous, jealous God. And David got it. Against you I have sinned. Against you and you alone have I sinned. All right? So now look what happens. Look back in your text at what happens when there is godly grief, when there is godly guilt, when we understand that what's been harmed is our relationship with God. For godly grief produces a, give me that word, such a big unpopular word, repentance. It produces a repentance. So what is the objective evidence or the fruit of godly grief? Repentance. Let's talk about what it is, what it isn't. Repentance is twofold. And where you remove either piece, you no longer have repentance. Repentance is an internal change of mind that leads to an external change of living. All right? If you remove either one of those pieces, you no longer have what the Bible calls repentance. Let me give you an example. Where you have an internal change of mind, but not an external change. So listen to me, because I'm, I'm very fearful that I'm about to describe a bulk of us. Where in your mind you go, this is what's right, this is what God's asked, this is who he is, this is what we should do. Where you internally acknowledge what is right, but externally there is no change in you. God says things like this. I would call that easy believism, and it's in Amos 5, 21 through 24, it says this. I want you to get your head around this. I hate, no, I despise your feasts and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. So, okay, for us Gentiles, I hate it when you come to church. (laughs) Really? The God of the universe, I hate it when you come to church. Listen to what he says next. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fatted animals, I will not look upon them. Listen to this next part. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melodies of your harps. I will not listen. Here's the great quote by, um, well, Martin Luther King Jr. quotes the prophet Amos. But let justice roll down like the waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Here's what's happening here. He's going, I'll just be frank. I don't know what to do, be frank. God in heaven's going, shut up. Be quiet. I am sick of you constantly singing and saying and gathering and giving me. Do you not think I know what's in your heart? And do you think that at some level you've deceived me by this weird religious game that you're playing where constantly with your mouth you acknowledge what is true but will not live this way at all? Do you think you have me fooled? That's what he's saying in Amos. God, I hate Sundays. I guess he wouldn't say God. Me, I hate Sundays. (laughs) Now, how thick is that? How weighty is that? How hard is that? Like I said, nobody, nobody wants to talk about God being frustrated, angry, or being wrathful. Not in our culture. Everybody wants the Tinkerbell God. But here's what I would push. There is no sacred literature sans the Old Testament and New Testament that unpacks God as primarily loving So if you have this idea of an all-loving God, you got that from this sacred literature. You cannot 
pull the love parts out, I would say weaken the love of God in the scriptures by denying that it is his patience and mercy that is restraining his wrath. It's a weird game we're playing. It's a weird one because it's like really deep down inside, although I think we would verbalize it differently, we think we can hide things from him. Like as if God is confused by your right rhetoric. Oh, they, they go to church. They must love me. Oh, they, no, he, he no, can't stand it when internal is there and external isn't. Okay, so what about the, remember I said it, you can't, you gotta have them both. What if you have external but not internal? So if externally you clean yourself up, I'm not gonna do that anymore, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna stop doing this, and you're able to manage that, but internally there hasn't been that change. Well, you'll see that in verses like Matthew 23, 25, where he says this, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. This is legalism. By the way, is this starting to sound like a pendulum? All right, let's keep going. 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. You've got to have both pieces, internal leading to external. That's gospel repentance. And if you'll, if you'll remember the text, it leads us to two places, salvation and life without regret. Just, just as a sub point here, repentance and guilt are not the same things. Are you tracking with me on that? Just because you feel guilty does not make you repentant. Repentance is what occurs out of good guilt. Just because you feel bad about something does not make you repentant. That's just common misconception. I'm repentant. I hate that that happened. That doesn't make any sense. Those words don't mean the same thing. Okay? So out of an understanding that we have sinned against God leads us to repentance, an external, internal change that then has brought about salvation, which, just so you know, that the gospel writers, in fact, the whole scriptures, Old and New Testament, will not separate out faith and repentance. All right? There's a lot of debate among theologians on which one came first and which one comes first. But among Bible-believing scholars, you're not going to find anyone that thinks that if there is no repentance, there's salvation. Faith, salvation, they are opposite sides of the same coin. Okay? Now, let me talk about life with no regret. Um, Keep your finger here, because we're going to have to come back and at least look at worldly. But go to 1 Timothy 1 for me real quickly. First Timothy 1, we're going to pick it up in verse 12. I want to show you what I mean by life with no regret. First Timothy 1, we'll pick it up in 12. Here's what it says. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly and in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Listen to 15. 
The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason. That in me Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. This is life without regret. Like the religion I grew up in was a bunch of very clean cut white guys going, I would never... I have never been to such a, I would never think such and such. But the Bible is filled with a slew of men that are like, I was wicked. I did go. I did do. I was, in fact, it is the MO of God to pull out of the darkest recesses of earth those he will save and use. Yeah, this is life without, yeah, I imprisoned. Yes, I killed. Yes, I was wicked. Yes, I was violent. Yes, I was horrible. Praise his name. That's life without regret. When you're not hiding your secret and shame anymore, but you're going, yeah, I was that. In fact, I was that, and God still loved me, still came to get me, still rescued me. If he could save me that was guilty of all of that, don't you think he might be able to save you? Like This is so constant in the Bible, I don't know how we could ever get away with it. I I giggle all the time when I see the pressure on us to acknowledge that guys in the first century tinkered with the Bible, like they changed things they didn't want in there and changed. Can I I just, can we just chat freely? I mean, you can't do anything about it. I have a mic. If Peter is the first pope and he, 60 years after the ascension of Christ, is sitting on top of the church and can control the Bible, Don't you think Peter is pulling a couple of things out of the Bible that actually are still in it? I mean, he is an absolute moron in this entire book. Even his highlights are clouded by him being a moron. Don't worry, I'll have to stand in front of him face to face one day and give an account. All I'm going to do is point back to the Bible. You were. (laughs) Jesus called him the devil at one point. Never figures it out, never gets it, is constantly blowing it. It's got... Don't you think if Peter's sitting on top of things six years ago, let's take that denial part out. I don't think that's really all that important. Hey, that time I said, blessed are you. Uh, You are the son, you are the Messiah. You are the son of God. And then Jesus blessed me and said, blessed are you, Simon Peter, because God has revealed this to you. And then right after that, I tried to lecture Jesus, even though I just said he was God. And he called me Satan and told me to get him past that. Let's take that part out. (laughs) Not not only that, even for my charismatics in here, even after he was filled with the Holy Spirit, Preached at Pentecost, 3,000 Jewish men saved. By chapter 4, 5,000 more Jewish men saved. 8,000 Jewish men, probably more like 15, 16, 17,000 converts to Jesus Christ. Saul is converted, becomes Paul, and within a year of Paul's conversions, he's having to correct Peter, who is just sitting with wealthy Jews and no one else. I mean, that's one of the last things we hear about Peter. The rock on which Christ builds the church. Yeah, life without regret isn't that there's not hurt back there, shame back there, wounds back there. It's that Christ has redeemed those things and now use them to display his patience, his glory, and his grace. That's life without regret. So in the Judeo-Christian belief system, all guilt is birthed out of an offense against God is repented of, leads to salvation and a life of no regret. That's lane one. 
But that's not the only thing we've got here. So let's look at the second part of this text. Once again in 2 Corinthians. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Very simple statement next. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Let me give you just a working definition of worldly grief. Worldly grief or worldly regret is when you feel sorry for something you did because it starts to backfire on you and either humiliates you or punishes you. All right? That's worldly grief. Worldly grief is, oh, oh no, I just lost my job because I did A. Oh no, my wife's leaving because I did B. Oh, my children hate me because I did C. Oh, I am seen in the community as a pervert, as a thief, as a liar, as a... Worldly grief is what happens when the roof of your mirage is ripped off. People see who you really are and you still don't want to acknowledge that's who you really are. That's worldly grief. It is a knee-jerk reaction of a proud heart. That's what it is. And so here's what you can do with it. Here's why it leads to death. I think there are five things you can do with it. One, you can try to learn from your mistakes and grow. I, I think that's the bulk of what people do that leads them into the other four that we'll get into. But, but in the end, this is, I think it's somewhat problematic. One, it doesn't address the origin of guilt because if there isn't a God and there isn't an Imago day, why should your guilt drive you to get better? Shouldn't you just try to silence it since it's just hormones firing off in your brain? See, I was an agnostic, not an atheist. I don't know how you do this. Sure. Not only that, but I think every ounce of empirical data you could find would show you that as soon as the repercussions of your actions have alleviated or dissipated, you'll return to whatever you were doing at first. All right? So that's the first way. Here's a couple of other ways you can handle it. Um, We've had two children. We're about to have our third. My daughter was a pacifier girl. My boy is a thumb sucker. Let me tell you which we prefer. We prefer the thumb sucking. I'll tell you why. If you're in your car driving (laughs) and your pacifier kid drops the pacifier and begins to scream, you will endanger your life and the life of everyone around you (laughs) trying to find that thing to shut the kid up. All right? So you'll swerve. You've got to find... Thumb sucker? You don't drop your thumb. All right? Nobody's like, where did I, where did I put that? All right? The thumb doesn't disappear into thin air like the pacifier does. Okay? So with Reed, we never had this problem. Boom. He's asleep in his chair. Audrey would drop her pacifier and scream bloody murder until we could find it or until we could get home. So here's what we did as loving parents. Oh, that's a good song. We just turn up the noise, man. We just turn up the music. All right? Why you guys, does that make me cruel or something? She likes it. She likes music, all right? I do too. And so we would turn up the radio and then we would drown out her screaming until we got home. It was either that or scream obscenities and slam my head into the dash. I feel that I chose the righteous path, okay? It was worship music. And so um, you turn it up so that you don't hear the screaming, The primary way people handle guilt and shame is they turn up the noise. And listen, you live 
in the most perfect age in the history of mankind to turn up the noise. You do, man. I mean, you can watch a television show on your phone while you're looping and twittering that you're watching a show on your phone as you have a conversation with your friend. I mean, that's unbelievable. I mean, I grew, I'm 34. I'm a young man. And I remember going, do, do, do. Oh, it's Jim. What are you doing? Nothing. What are you doing? Why'd you page me? Just wanted to see what you were doing. Okay, bye. All right. So I, I remember the pager. It was the size of a garage door opener. I mean, there is more to do right now than there's ever been able to do. And what you have to do if guilt haunts you, if it chases you, if shame is anywhere in you, is you just have to try to avoid it. So let's busy ourselves with work. Let's busy ourselves with friends. Let's entertain our minds as best we can. And let's, I I think the problem with it, as effective as it is for the most part, is it'll eventually catch up to you. You'll eventually have to try to go to sleep. All right? So I I think it's an exercise in futility. The third thing, is to deny that guilt exists and dive into whatever the thing is that's causing you guilt. Um, The reason I think this is a problem is because it perpetuates itself and creates greater guilt. Let me give you some examples. So the man who can't stop drinking feels guilt over his drinking, so he drinks to get over the guilt and wakes up with what? More guilt. Now this cycle continues until what? He's living in a bottle. All right? I'll give you a wildly popular one. Lust, pornography, sex. Men and women will use those three things to try to avoid loneliness and to feel, even for a second, intimacy. All right? Most of the time, at, at the expense of intimacy. Like a guy looking at naked images on his computer while his real, living, breathing, flesh-covered, breast-having wife <laughs> is in the other room is an odd thing, is it not? It's not it, sh- it reveals a little bit of sickness. Spiritual, emotional, interpersonal relationship sickness. So we will run to lust, run to pornography, and run to liaisons, just sex without deep relationship to try to get rid of loneliness and feel intimate. And here's here's what makes it so devastating. For an instant, it works. And then it's gone. And all the loneliness that you felt and all the lack of intimacy that you walk in is simply compounded the second the act is over. And you're left now with not only the guilt of the action, but now having to wrestle through feeling used, feeling like you used, feeling... You've just compounded your guilt. You haven't solved it. Yeah. A um, third way is, and, and this is actually pretty wildly popular too, is you can just blame others. This is easy because there's always someone around you. So you don't have to feel guilty about your actions. You're only doing those actions because such and such did this. And since they did this, you did that. And you wouldn't have done that if they wouldn't have done that. See, they hurt you. So how am I supposed to? And so all you have to do is find some target to blame for your actions. And you can diffuse your guilt because someone else is responsible for what you've done. Yeah. Wildly popular. 
And then here's the last one. This isn't as popular, but we do see it. You can just dive right into it. Here's what I mean. You can operate at a level of self-hate where subconsciously you will destroy every good thing in your life. You will enter bad relationship after bad relationship after bad relationship after bad relationship. You will sabotage your body with food and drink. You will, is a subconscious level of self-hate that has at its core schema, I am not good for anything. I am worthless. I do not deserve love. I do not. And that's just as much idolatry as the narcissist who thinks he's the new God of the universe. That's why he's saying worldly grief here is going to produce death. There's no way to diffuse guilt, only to feed it. That's why Jesus says the thief comes to kill, steal, and to destroy. But I have come so that you might have life and have it to the full. Life with no regret. Salvation, a way out. So we can proudly go, no, I was a piece of work. In fact, two weeks from now, we'll baptize over 50 people across our services. You'll hear it over and over and over and over again that this is who I was, but praise be his name. This is what he's done. This is the difference between worldly guilt, a guilt that in the end will kill you, and godly grief that leads to life, repentance, transformed soul. One more thing I want to cover. Not, we can't do it today. It's, we're done. It's 12-11. What do we do with the fact that although as believers we have repented and turned with the fact that we still struggle daily and some of us, maybe we can be one of the few places on earth that actually admit this. Some of us, although we love the Lord very much, are stuck in habitual patterns of sin. Can we admit that, that some of us are? I mean, I know that's not what we should do. We should be well put together and praising Jesus for how good we are. Or we could be honest, prefer honesty. What do we do with habitual sin in the life of a believer? And, and what do we do with the fact that although we have repented and turned, it feels like we might need to repent again? That'll be next week. Let's pray. I want to ask you a question just that since we've got our head bowed and eyes closed that might help us not be distracted a little bit if you have to be honest with you here because let's, let's what I think of you what I know I mean none of that matters none of that, but what what you think what you know, what your life is has not been hidden from God at all. Like, if you are playing this religious game, like if you know in your mind what's right, but you perpetually live in what's wrong, and, and yet you keep coming to church, and you keep saying the things that you know you're supposed to say, and you know, like something's broken in there, and, and by pretending that it's not broken, by isolating yourself and hiding what those issues are, you have not fooled 
God. People are easy to fool. We can only see what we can see, touch what we can touch, smell what we can smell, taste what we can taste, hear what we can hear. We, we can't get into the spirit, can't get in there. Some of us have the gift of discernment, but on the most part, everyone can be fooled. So what, what really is the state of your relationship with God? This is a tremendous question. If you're marked by something, is it a godly grief? Is it a grief that's birthed out of embarrassment, fear of what other people are going to think of you? The, 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 really, the telltale sign is, is there any repentance in your life at all? If the answer is no to that, if there is no internal, external change occurring, then, then it's an easy answer to the question. It's worldly sorrow. Okay, so if that's us, and I think it's a lot of us, well, what do we do? Well, the the scriptures would say, repent and believe. Um, Believe what? Um, I think the thing that you've got to believe in, got to trust in, is that the cross of Christ paid the bill. That's the hope by which we come. There's a way to deal with sin in such a way that's filled with hope, and then there's a way to deal with it that's like riding a stationary bicycle. You'll pedal yourself to death and never go anywhere that's next week today I'm going to pray and then we're just going to be dismissed but here's what I want to encourage you to do as soon as I say amen we're dismissed you you can go I'm going to ask you to leave this place quietly and that you might leave this room in here for those who need to pray who need to talk with a friend who need to just sit in silence for a bit who need to just leave this room for that if you need to talk with someone if I've confused you if you need clarification if you need any of those things there'll be some elder candidates some pastors and and some lay leaders of ours that are just sitting up here on the stage would love to pray with you love to encourage you love to unpack a little bit more some of the things I've said here today I know this stuff is hard My hope is that we would feel the weight of what our heart and mind is towards the living God and then the fact that he has restrained the full weight of our consequences out of his mercy, patience, and love would be the kindness of God that led us to repentance. Father, I thank you for these men and women and I thank you for a chance to let the Bible read us. I do thank you for difficult truths difficult, heavy, hard truths which help us understand really the beauty of the cross, the beauty of what occurred in the sending of the Son, the glory of your name in saving us who have belittled you so consistently and constantly. I pray against diving full on into guilt. I pray against trying to manage pray for surrender. Help us. We'll need it. It's for your beautiful name we pray. Amen. I love you. You're dismissed. Thank you for listening to audio from the Village Church located in Texas. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. 
For more information about The Village Church, please visit us online at www.thevillagechurch.net.